Hello, folks. You might, you're probably surprised right now. You're like, why are these two idiots here on your, your screen? Well, um, you clicked on the fucking button, dumbass. <laughs> well, we told you that we were done with uh, Modern Horror, Horror uh, Tour Directors Month, and we told you we were doing Matt Damon. Um, but in between those two months, we're doing a little uh, roundup on our new movie releases that we watched in uh, September. Uh, specifically movies that are either became available for the first time that way through theaters or um, streaming or like lesser known movies that took till September to end up on streaming services, even if they really seems like a very small release earlier on. Um, and we're just here to give you a quick rundown of what we watched. Um, we decided to do this because uh, we were killing ourselves attempting to review like seven new movies a month. And it just became way too much. And we were like, we don't need to do 30 minutes on every movie that comes out. We can do a, a quick hitting, fast paced breakdown and give you some information about what's available and what you can go watch yourself. Yeah, we still want to talk about new movies because you could also say we didn't. We were killing ourselves doing this, so we just stopped reviewing it because it doesn't really matter. But we do enjoy talking about the new releases. Absolutely, we don't get to, don't get to do it that much um, since our show is mostly based on past movies. Yeah, absolutely. We love to talk about the new movies. We just wanted to do it in a way that was, I think, not only easier for us to produce, but also I think as an audience, more manageable to watch one video where we tell you about seven movies that came out in September that you then could go access either on streaming services or in theaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what we're going to do, really simply, uh, we saw some movies that the other one didn't see. So we're going to do those first. We'll jump back and forth. Uh, keep it as no spoilers as possible. Um, we made you some small details. I'm not gonna, if you're one of those people who is super militant about spoilers where they consider anything to be a spoiler, maybe not the episode of you for you, but we're going to try to keep it from uh, spoiling any kind of plot stuff. And then at the end, we have two movies that we both saw um, that are now available. Um, yeah, we're going to do it by release date. We'll do the ones that we we individually saw first and then the ones that we saw together after. All right, um, Zach, we're going to start with you and yeah. the newest uh, entry in the MCU, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Which yeah. is currently in theaters and was released on uh, September third. Yeah, both of, both of mine that I've seen that you haven't seen are are in theaters movies because um, yes. you, you're you're still you're huddling in at home for the most part. Um, but I ventured out to my local art house, not a joke, literally my local art house to see Shang Chi in the Legend of the Ten Rings, um, the one movie that they're like we we need at least need that Marvel money um, so we can then get. Um, language lessons and titan on the side. Um, so I saw Shang-Chi. Um, it's fun. Um, I have a story that I am going to say because it's more fun than the movie itself. Do it. Um, uh, but but Shang-Chi, um, it's, so it is, it ha its main problem is what I think is going to be part of the Marvel problem moving forward with, with where they kind of took this universe, especially post-Loki, um, which is, it is like 75% exposition because the mythology yeah. has gotten like so dense that they just like every character has to spend a couple of scenes explaining to kind of um, find find your ground. Um, but I will say the cast is charming. Um, you know, I think they fit right in tonally to the MCU. They're going to be you know nice likable characters for us to follow in the next um, generation. Um, the action scenes, especially for the first half, when it kind of stays still more grounded and much more connected to kind of classic martial arts movies um, is very engaging, very exciting, and holds its own separate from um, Marvel movies. Um, and, I mean, you get to see great uh, great actors um, of the Hong Kong and Chinese tradition uh, with Tony Luang. Um, I cannot pronounce his name right. Sorry, Tony Luang, right? The, um, and it's Long. Long, thank you. And Michelle Yeoh, um, who I just adore. Wong Kar Wai, uh, 
Pro, yeah. One car Y muse Tony Lung. Yeah, and just really, you know, sexy brings, dude. Sexy guy brings brings a lot of great grief um, and, and um, like moody, leering um, <laughs> into the into the um, in Marvel universe in a way that I don't think anyone would have expected. Um, 12 years ago, that Tony Lung would have been in a Marvel movie, but it happens. It's what you got to do now to keep keep the uh, meat on the kitchen table. Um, it, but Michelle Yeoh, who who has always played, um, you know, uh, more with mainstream movies, um, she has done tons of blockbusters. Just wow. always great to see another one who just adds a, adds a level of credibility to these types of movies. Um, and if I had to listen to um, ten minutes of exposition. I wanted from Michelle Yeoh. Um, yes, here's my Shang Chi story. Before I move on, go ahead. Go ahead. This is my favorite, one of my favorite things that has happened this this month. Um, so during the movie, and there's a few other people in the movie. Um, right at the last credits, um, this older couple comes in, um, and woman very loud. They're talking. They're talking about they're like they're vaccinated. Other things I don't know. Um, didn't didn't really bug me. Because once the movie started, when they talked, it was all kind of like, it was sparse throughout the movie. Like every 15 minutes, maybe she said something a little loud, but it was always really funny um, and endearing. It was like when one of the big action scenes on train that gets talked about a lot. She's like, yeah, this is my type of movie. <laughs> it was uh, very, very humorous. I mean, at the end, um, during the, the post credit scene, I see her explaining to the guy that this is connected to the Marvel Universe. So he had no idea what this like movie was or what it, what it, what, what it belonged to. Um, and after the movie goes on, the woman's gone. And just the man's there. And he comes up to me and is like, you know, I, I, I'm going to make up her name as Janice because that's just what her name should be. And he goes, I really apologize um, for Janice. I know she was speaking too loud. Um, and I threw my mom under the bus. I'm like, my mom speaks so loud. <laughs> like, I, I'm used to it. Um, it's not a big deal. And he's like, yeah, um, you know, she's a lot of fun. We just met in the ticket line. And they just, like, hung out in this movie together and talked the whole time. So I like this new, like, old couple movie things that you just meet up, find a stranger in the, in the lobby, and, like, do you want to see Shang-Chi with me? And then they go together. The guy did follow me all the way to the car. Um, talking to me about whatever mountain climbing documentary I haven't heard of at the theater. He said, I'm more of an art house guy. Um, so I think he's just really finding all the movie friends he can have. Um, but that, that story just kept growing to me and caught me way off guard that they didn't even know each other. That is interesting. I want to ask you a couple quick questions and then we'll move on. Um, first about off. About Shang-Chi? Yeah, about Shang-Chi. What about um, the old guy I'm at? We'll call uh, him Jerry. I think, I think Jerry, I think we got all the Jerry we need uh, for now. Um, from what I hear, from what I've heard in the non-spoiler discussion, this movie falls into a lot of the traps of just comic book movies in general. Like the third act is supposedly sort of a CGI craft fest that we've seen in, you know, 20 other movies. Yeah. Is that, would you say that this movie falls into not only the whole of exposition, but also into just the, the problems that seem to plague comic book movies throughout the ages? I definitely agree, even though I feel like it shouldn't, because without trying to spoil it, the, the like pieces at play are, I think, inherently a little more different and more interesting, mm -hmm. but they somehow still kind of put it with too much Marvel polish on CGI it. CGI battle in the third act. Yeah. yeah, and the CGI thing, and you kind of get, you lose the action a lot. You lose the place um, um, that don't really have great idea of 
was having we talked in other movies about like the geography of action boys understanding you know what was happening yeah. and, and this does lose out with them yeah the cgi i was having a little friendlier on those parts than most people and i think half of the climax i'm still really into but does just go too far and for way too long yeah um, especially when the rest of the action was i said much more grounded well the problem is that like classic martial arts asian cinema action is just fundamentally different from what the mcu has done even from the beginning it's just a completely different like scale and uh you know you know martial arts action is often shot very close mcu action is often shot quite far away and kind of more expansive um the final question i have for you is you liked black widow more than i did um, where does Shang-Chi rank up against Black Widow of the two MCU movies released this year? I'm reaching a point where they're just all the same to me. They all like, kind of another pleasant addition to the MCU that I care about to an extent and will watch every movie, but it doesn't like subvert or enhance what I expect from those movies anymore. So it's hard, hard to get it. I think it gave it the same rating of seven. And yeah. um, I think with time, I'll probably appreciate Shang-Chi more. I think there is. Um, you know, a little more growth to the universe that that, that movie provides. And, and, um, and, you know, movie is not inherently good because of diversity, but in, when, you know, you, you earn it, they, they like earn the usage of the culture within the film. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's, it comes off naturally, I think does add something because there's, there's kind of characters in the world we haven't seen before in the universe. So it does um, enhance the movie, I think a little bit over Black Widow. Yeah, you. Uh, I think if you if anyone flashes back to our Black Widow discussion, Zach's entire MC ranking is like four movies at the top, two movies at the bottom, and everything else in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff in the yeah. middle. Um, I do think also Shang Chi probably suffers from the fact that the Ten Rings have been introduced at some point in the universe, so they sort of have to not only do exposition for their own world, but also explain retcon yeah. how their how this current movie fits into a MCU universe. I think they do that stuff pretty well and pretty. F- humorously in some aspects i'm sure but it's also that's a lot to put on a movie when it comes out as an origin story it's like hey you also have to explain how your movie ties into the original mcu film and all the stuff that's come since then in in really some like cultural correction in a way that i think was necessary through the retconning it does i mean thank i mean there is i believe a like short film where after the release of iron man 3 which basically is like the real Mandarin, like yeah. further cemented the Trevor Slattery was a prop used by these people. Mm-hmm. There is a real Mandarin out there, um, which sort of set up the eventual creation of something like Shang-Chi. Yeah. Um, I will say a lot of hype over the bonus credit scene has been like one of the best ever. It's a bonus credit scene that tells you a little bit of clues what's going next. It's, can we just can no, we just don't say, freak out too much? Can about we just it. say it for the people in the back? If you take all like I tried one time to rank the MCU credit scenes. I couldn't important. remember what half of them are. They're like just there are some, trailers. There are some that are memorable. Like, um, I'm you know the first one for Iron Man. I want to talk about the Avengers Initiative, the introduction of uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. There are some that are memorable. Most of but them that, are that not one's memorable. Bad when you watch it, it's good because of like new characters. No, 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 no it's bad. It's a bad scene, but it's at least memorable. I remembered that one exists. So many of them are just like. You know, oh, a car drives up and there's Thor's hammer. Like, uh, some of them are way more interesting than others, and a lot of them are forgettable. But let's jump ahead. We've got another movie to talk about that you also only saw, which is The Card Counter, new Paul Schrader film, which is currently in theaters. Um, 
Yeah. I think this this movie is intentionally just like a hard battle with like how do you feel about it? Um, I I I I'm We're coming like out a Paul Schrader fandom. It's Paul. Yeah, it's a very very Paul Schrader movie in a lot of ways, and I'm coming out. I'd say highly positive, um, especially with I think it is like a top tier performance by Oscar Isaac. He brings a lot to the film. I think he's a perfect match for Schrader's style and elevating it a little bit out of the deep dark depths that Schrader kind of d- dives in. Um, I think Isaac just has the movie star charisma that can make it a little more lively. Um, when like Ethan Hawke, I think just like was swimming in those those follows and um, first performed in a way that I didn't appreciate his performance as much as everyone else. And, and for some reason, I think Oscar Isaac just has a little bit of a dynamic to play against um, Schrader while still when he needs to be in those really fraught, hard moments, he can be super intense and um, super engaging. But also when you're just like watching him play poker, you got to have a movie star. And he really is. Um, I, I think the way he can balance movie stardom with kind of um, how I can, like dark intensity I, there's better words and i'm very tired um it, it might be in my layer box review um but it, it is something that i feel like many other actors probably couldn't bring to the film it's kind of perfect casting um there's a lot of odd choices for a supporting cast that i think the movie makes you enjoy it in a way that you would expect with tiffany haddish kind of being um the the We'll call her love interest. That's not really spoiling, but just within the film, she's kind of set up as um, the lo- a love interest within the film. And, and um, Ty Sheridan coming from what was his last movie? Did, I thought he was done after Ready Player One. Um, but Ty Sheridan appears as you know, the um, X Men movie. Isn't that his last? Yeah, maybe. Um, Ty Sheridan. I'm trying to really. I don't want to get too many details because as you find more, even like reveals within the five first ten minutes. I don't, I think. Are still kind of, you know, um, kept a little secret because you you want to kind of dive deeper into that character's soul with the film, and you don't want to know too much. So Ty Sheridan, without spoiling much, is just someone um, that has connections to Oscar Isaac's past that he kind of takes under um, his wing and and really kind of wants to redeem some of his past sins through how he can treat that character. Um, and as I say, my my problem with Paul Schrader, at least with this and first performed. Um, not with um, some of his other movies I've seen, but with those two, um, is when he wants to go heavy, he hits the nail a little too hard at times. Um, I, I've talked a lot first before. This is a small moment, but just encapsulates my greater thought is that they're like the, a movie that's essentially about global warming and climate change and, and, and going down this moment of dread and paranoia about it. Um, how you know a character was freaking out is he had the most cliched picture of a polar bear on a, of the frozen ice. It's just like the hardest nammer hit they can possibly have. And I think the movie doesn't have anything uh, that kind of obvious, but it does just take things a little too far at points that it's kind of like we get the point without. Um, and the ending scene is like really odd. And maybe someone has a really good take with the last shot. Um, I have no idea what that last shot is supposed to mean or, or why that's included. Um, I don't think it makes it bad because I, I, I'm sure there's 
some kind of explanation. Um, maybe I'll get it on my 36th watch. I'm going to do the card counter. But anyone who watches Card Counter 36 times probably needs psychiatric treatment because it is a weird and disturbing movie. Um, and in a way that like half it's a poker movie. So it's it, it it's a, such a complex chemistry of those those things together. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'd forgotten that uh, the last credit for Ty Sheridan is as just complete dickhead Tommy Matthews in the Madden 21 uh, face of the franchise mode. Just a, I forgot that was a thing. Um, I think Ty, Ty Sheridan has given two top tier kid performances um, between Mud and um, Joe. He's really good in Joe. He was like 17 at that point, but we'll still got it. He does strike me as an actor who never functionally figured out how to transition from being a child actor to an adult actor. Yeah. Like, even like you watch his acting as an adult, and it's like, you still sort of just look like a kid who's Freeze. now tall Sarah, and like can grow a beard. What do you think about Good Bohani? Wonderful. Yeah, she said wonderful. Yeah, continue. Yeah, Good <laughs> Hunting coming soon. Um, Sarah's on the yeah. episode. She's our guest. Beautiful. We'll clip always, this always out and put that in the Goodwill Hunting episode. You're, you're giving me way too much credit. Um, that's the card counter. I give it to our producer, Michael Campbell. Yeah. I have no questions about the card counter because I think asking questions would spoil it, and I don't want to spoil it for myself or anyone I'd say, yes. It's not a, like a twisty movie per se, but it is has layers to the character that are best discovered with it. All right, let's do a couple movies that I saw and you didn't, but are interested in. Um, the Killing of Two Lovers, which is on Hulu since uh, September 10th. Um, this is a story about a family. They have three children, husband and wife. They've been married for a while. They're currently experiencing some like marital problems, and they've decided that they're going to work through it, but they also can see other people in the meantime. And um, the wife starts seeing somebody, and the husband can't deal with it. Um, and sort of it's just a kind of... It's a very traditional relationship drama in structure and form, but it uh, features one of the most anxiety-producing scenes ever. Um, I left this scene, my stomach tied in knots, and I like couldn't sleep. It was uh, kind of almost traumatic in how um, in how much it ranked, ramped up your anxiety. Uh, I won't go into details beyond that. Really strong emotional drama. I think worth watching. It's also really short, super tight movie. Um, I dare anyone to not be emotionally or physically affected by this film. That's uh, that's all. It kind of sounds like some Zach stuff, and I'm I, I'm excited. I kind of forgot this existed before I just looked at my watch list and then looked that you also happened to see it. Um, but I must have heard good things for me to add it. But it is kind of oh, it had, I believe it has like ninety six percent. I believe it came out and has like ninety six percent or something. It is. It, it was very well reviewed. It's a very small film, but it was a uh, very well reviewed. You said short, tight, and emotionally involving. That sounds like stuff I want. Yeah, it's like 84 minutes long. Um, let's keep going. It's like uh, eight Crime... minutes longer than many adventures away in the poos. I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> All right, Cry Macho. This is the probably the biggest one I watched that Zach didn't get around to. I might um, never watch this, honestly. Here's the here's the honest truth. You don't need to watch this movie. And not because it's bad. I gave it three out of five. This is the classic modern Clint Eastwood movie. Outside of a couple <laughs> films where he takes some bigger swings, Clint Eastwood just... I don't know why he's still making movies. He's 91 years old. He has like these screenplays that are like half-baked. He does one take of everything. Um, you can tell because the movies read like they took one take. 
this movie has no point. This is like Clint Eastwood works for Dwight Yoakam and he wants him to go get his kid. Um, there's just nothing here. You watch this entire movie and you're like, is there going to be a profound sequence? Is something interesting going to happen? Is something cool going to happen? No, it's, it's a modern Clint Eastwood movie. It's a nothing screenplay. It's not really anything interesting to say. Um, he's a good enough actor at this point and he's been doing it for long enough that he can sort of shoot himself doing anything in one take and be fine. Um, he casts a bunch of nobodies around him. They're not particularly good. Um, I, I mean, I generally, I, to continue my, my process of daring people, I dare anyone to have a, a strong reaction to this movie, either like really hate it or really love it. I just don't think anyone's going to be that. I think everyone's going to end up in like the three star range or plus or minus a star in either direction. He's also 90. Isn't his family like worried about him going out and making films? My stepmom talks to me all the time how she worries her like 85 year old dad drives for like an hour. That freaks her out. But they're like, he's going to go film a movie for 30 days on set all day. And this big kids are like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, which brings me up to the most important question we're asking tonight. Who's more likely to die while filming a movie? Um, Clint Eastwood or Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise, 100%. I, I'm going to go. I'm gonna put my money that Clint Eastwood just like passes out with a heart attack in the middle of filming his like third movie in a year. Here's the thing. At age Clint, Eastwood, Clint Eastwood would never do anything in his movies that would elevate his heart rate to the point where he'd have a heart rate. At his age, walking does that. He barely walks in these movies, though. Like he barely does anything. Like there's nothing. It like and it's it's honestly kind of frustrating because you have these moments like, in these. Fuck a bunch of hookers and the mule. I think that would get more. He heart does, heart. and in this film, another like woman who's fifty years younger than him tries to bone him. It's a it's a weird. I can't tell if he's doing this or people just writing like scenes, knowing that that'll make him like it. Yeah, it's does, it's a fine movie. He only picks movies based on like who he gets to fuck. No, I think he picks. I think he just he has this weird trend in like sort of not PC old dude who was like very blue collar. Like that's the movie. It's all the movies he makes recently. And then he does stuff like, you know, Richard Jewell, which is like deeply concerning and like the choices that it makes or like something like 15 to 17 pairs, which is just absolute dog shit. But besides that, you know, his movies are like, I, I think two things. One, I think he should stop acting in his own movies i think he's his recent decent stuff is a little i mean i guess well okay when he acts his movies are consistently mediocre when he directs but doesn't act his movies have a little bit wider of a gap sometimes they're really sucking sometimes they're good um i here's yeah i don't know couple he's, gonna keep, he's gonna do this for 10 more years He's going to make three out of five star movies for the next 10 years. And I'm going to watch. He... I think I'm done. Unless for some reason, like Tom Hanks gets another one. I think um, Richard Jewell might be my last one I watched. And I really despise that movie. Um, I love Sully. It's the only good movie I like that he's made in the past 10 years. Um, I never watched Gran Torino. And I didn't watch this because I really have no interest in what Clint Eastwood has to say about Mexican-American relations and immigration. I don't need this movie. That... Isn't there a little bit of that in this? No, he has. It's at, it's actively thumbing its nose at sort of the conservative ideology around immigration. Okay, I just don't want to even hear him talk about immigration. Though. It's not even about it's not even about immigration. Okay. If we're being completely honest. Okay, it has almost nothing to. Yeah, I don't know. I've Maybe seen. Lot, I've seen all, you changed my mind. I've seen almost all his movies since you know, like two thousand, except for like three or four outliers um do you know what else i don't want to see this movie because the name is stupid 
Name is so stupid, and I, I, I can't take it seriously. Do you want to know what Macho is in the movie? Do you know it's what it is? It's not Machismo. Macho is the name of a chicken. Um, this, oh, I heard there's like cockfighting in this. The kid he has to go get has like a pet cocky like stuff fight or something. I don't know. Should I should I try to race Theo into the cockfighting rings? Make him a no. Big please don't do that. Cockfighter, at least a bookie for cockfights. Yeah, I don't know. That's, it's it's good. math. It's a, it's a, I think my just my larger statement out of this movie is it is such a Clint Eastwood film of recent years and like you know I, there's a lot of people who like to congratulate him on his efficiency and one take philosophy and I personally I think it's stupid because it's not producing great movies and there's a reason people do about takes and give actors chances to do stuff it's because oftentimes you get a much better performance and a much better movie. When you let your actors try more than one time, unless you're Tom Hanks landing um, a plane in Hudson, right? The, but that's that's the that's the problem. Did the plane that... only take one take? <laughs> They're like, you get one crash and we move on. Yeah, you gotta just, I don't know, you gotta have, cast Tom Hanks, or otherwise let people do more than take. It's stupid. Um, I don't know. Not necessarily saying you have to do a hundred takes like some crazy people, but ten takes is, I think, a reasonable number. It doesn't take that much time. Um, yeah, try macho. Thoroughly mediocre. Watch if you want. I, I say the weirdest thing is like I can't even like it's so weird watching. This is like the most meh of his movies. Like recently, I either walk out of his movies being like that was good or like I fucking hated that. And this is the yeah. movie where just like I don't I don't really have a take either direction. Um, let's switch to a completely different person. Um, the Mad Woman's Ball, which is on Amazon Prime, is a movie uh, directed by and co-starring or supporting actor starring. Uh, Melanie Laurent, who is probably most famous for her role in Beginners. Got it. I was going to say Inglorious Bastards, but yes, we can tell <laughs> Beginners as well. Um, yeah. It's hard to talk about this movie without relieving spoilers. Um, I just want to give me, I'm trying to check what the, if you Google how much information. Um, yeah. So essentially, it's about a woman who can hear spirits, can hear ghosts, and then gets um, assigned to uh, a mental hospital uh, shortly after the death of author Victor Hugo. Weirdly, she's at Victor Hugo's funeral in the opening scene. Um, and then it's sort of a commentary on how the mental health profession has treated women. I mean, up until the recent uh, addendum to the DSM, the book of basically all the diagnosis. There's all these like women's problems and hysteria things that were in there. And it's a commentary on sort of how mental health professionals have treated women and also how um, abusive sometimes the medical industrial complex is to female patients who are uh, detained within it because of uh, whatever condition they face. Um, I, I would just say that it is a, it's a very strong idea. It's a very strong premise. It's a strong thesis. It's a strong concept. And you kind of spend the entire movie going, is it going to happen now? Like you kind of, you spend the entire movie going, is it going to click now? Is it going to click now? And it never really does. And it's not a terrible movie. I'm interested to see more of Melanie Laurent directing because I do think she has, I, I think, a pretty decent visual style. Have you seen any of her other films? I don't believe so. I can, let me uh, give it a quick check. No, this is the first directing, directorial uh, movie from her I've seen. But yeah. I think she should keep directing. I just think that next time, you know, 
if you're going to have an idea as strong as this, make sure you get to a point at the end of your movie where I'm like, oh, that was a profound statement, and I'm really glad I watched that. Because this one, you know, a little bit kind of disappointing in that didn't really have anything to say. She is, like, really, not prolific, but, like, she had, like, six movies. I mean, it's really prolific yeah. considering that, like, she doesn't really have a recognizable career in the eyes of American audiences um, before 2009. I, like, I didn't know half these movies existed. And yeah, what, so. the one I seen was an earlier one, well, 2014, which is Breathe. Yeah, so I've never heard any of them. Another one's like, in some of the directions, interesting. Um, and, like, the acting was strong, but there's still something, like, a little missing to make it step up to the next level of something that I can remember more seven years later. Yeah, I wonder if this is sort of a, a consistent shortcoming of her where she has good ideas and then just doesn't always um, nail the, the final point. Um, let's jump ahead to the movies. We're going to finally talk some spoilers, talk some details um, in the movies we've seen. We've both seen Worth, which is the movie where uh, Michael Keaton plays Kenneth Feinberg, whose job is to figure out how to compensate the uh, victims and their families of the 9-11 tragedy in such a way that they don't all sue the airlines and basically bankrupt an entire industry. Uh, yeah. Amy Ryan plays sort of his um, co-worker and co-partner co yeah. co and then uh, Stanley Tucci plays um, the partner of someone who died on that day who is sort of their, the antagonist to them. Yeah, and like the leader of a, um, a advocacy opposing group. advocacy group. And Really great performance, honestly. I mean, it's Stanley freaking Tucci. The man is always... <laughs> I thought you were about to, to go against that when you said, man, I know it's... No, he's always good. It's like, okay. it's like I wouldn't... I don't know I if I'd be like... I forget. I always think he's going to be like a little too exaggerated. I forget he can really tone it down and give such real human performances. Um, I mean, he was really good in um, the movie with Colin Firth, Supernova. Um, as well, um, yeah, a lovely performance, and um, so yeah, it's a it's a good, secretly a really good year for just remembering um, how lovely he can be on screen. I mean, and speaking of like performances that are very much in line with what we think of of the actors, this is a very, very, very typical recent Michael Keaton performance. Yeah, um, very much in line with but, the, the, like the thing. The founder spotlight, Trial of Chicago Seven. Like this is all sort of like the playing real life people. Sort of, you know, it's a good performance. It's not something you're gonna be like, oh my god, that's groundbreaking or anything. Um, as sort of the movie, I think it the is kind of weird because I feel like they want to make it seem like he needs so much more growth than he does. He, there's like one line that say maybe his intentions had some level of ego to it that he kind of admits to but for the most part like you're you're seeing him take on a task that he knows is going to be challenging and for all we see with the best intentions in mind like he is doing it because he wants to help out and um to you know um give something back to these people that he really you know feels for and empathizes with their tragedy and they make his growth really has to be from going away from having to be so strict about the logistics of his job um, and the kind of rules that go with it with having a little bit of leeway to the real tragedy and varied stories that these people have, which 
sure they make it seem but they also make it seem like he has to have some sort of like philosophical growth like he is also was maybe not didn't have the ability to empathize with people which isn't really shown on screen like he always was three different reasons if he was going in fully cynical and lawyerish which is how they try to paint him at the end like he is just really uptight lawyer that d- does understand human feelings um then that growth would be seen but he isn't seen that way they just kind of try to say it <laughs> near the end yeah i mean i think fundamentally the movie the conflict of the movie is that what he is trying to do from the beginning is the right thing from a logic standpoint and that logically it makes sense that you would create a plan and a rubric and then build it out so you can be as fair as possible and evaluate all cases with exactly the same way. And the thing that the movie is sort of saying is that you can't evaluate the worth of human life the way you can the value of a car or the value of property. Like human beings are more complicated and have more nuance. Like you can't evaluate everything on the same level because you have to figure out, you know, you know, just because somebody is a CEO doesn't mean their life is worth more than, you know, a janitor. If that janitor is the sole breadwinner versus, you know, somebody else or like this movie also has to grapple with the fact that at the time, you know, if you were right. in a homosexual relationship, um, you don't get anything because in the eyes of the law and the eyes of the States you're from, you guys are just people who live together. You have no greater meaning under the law. And so the movie is asked to, you know, like the, his system is asked to take on a lot. And it, I think yeah. it's a very good Keaton performance in a very traditional movie. Like this is a movie that is always going to be enjoyable because of the nature of like, we like to see traumatized uh, past events, past historical events. But like this movie is not in any way trying to be anything more than just like a very, Simple but effective retelling. Like um, um, inspir- inspirational is not the right word, but a, a moving based on true story to kind of, you know, once again, remember to be empathetic of people's experiences and people's tragedies, just that kind of journey. But one more point I want to make, um, another problem I have, because all the stories that you kind of mentioned, when they investigate those cases is all very engaging, very interesting. Um, very moving. Um, but the one that they tend to focus on the most delves into this weird kind of soap opery melodrama in a way that I think clashes with the seriousness um, of the rest of the uh, of the film. I don't really get the point of, of what that character's yeah it's a bit issues of a had to do with the rest of the movie. It really seemed like it took away from what the rest of the movie was trying to say. I don't know if, if it was like they need a plot. I think that's why they're like, can we have some kind of more intriguing drama to add to the plot? Yeah. I, yeah, it's such a weird. I assume you know what I'm talking about. Without you're talking about the there's a, woman, a certain plot, the wife of a fire, the infidelity subplot. There's a like subplot about um, infidelity, and yeah, it's a very like weird one because they start off being like, we don't want anything, and then. Yeah, it's the. It, it I think the really problem with it is it doesn't feel. They don't feel like. Either. They don't feel like human beings. That story, like, is the one where the people don't feel like normal everyday humans. They, they, they always seem either too big emotionally or too shut down emotionally, and it's a weird. Like, and there's issue, that. The issues they're facing are more their own personal flaws rather than the flaws of the system, which is what the rest of the movie is focusing on. 
Yes. Like that is, yeah, it, it's the one, I think that the plot with the gay couple is actually one of the more effective ones. I For think because sure. it's, especially because it's one of those ones where in the modern context, you would never consider that being a problem, but then you do have to put yourself in the mindset. Yeah. In 2001, that would have been a huge problem. And like, yeah. you, like you just never, you don't think of that now. Cause we've, you know, we've and that's changed pushed, so much in so little time, but also like, yeah, that would have been pushed problem, aside. With as long with that's like kind of Amy Ryan's um, like subplot is her handling that case, and she's giving I think can compete with Stanley Tucci for the best performance of the movie because um, she really gets the two scenes that really kind of kill the emotional reactions and the the um, take the toll like on her psyche that this has been having on her and dealing with the situations. But here and there having to call him at the end to tell her the outcome of the case. Um, it was one of the most heartbreaking and real moments of the movie. Yeah, and Amy Ryan has always been somebody who is very good at like grounded kind of emotional performances like this. Uh, this feels very in line with other stuff you've seen her in. Um, you know, it's not a grounded performance. Her and Gone Baby Gone. It's a great movie. Her performance is not grounded. It is another planet. That is true. She's a bit crazy <laughs> in that one. Um, yeah, I like Amy Ryan. Uh, always weirdly good at everything. Um, yeah, it's worth. Worth is, worth is like, we talked about this recently. Like, worth is like a perfect seven out of ten movie. That is what it's really solid Netflix watch. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of people who are gonna like this. It'll not end. Up, it should. It it won't and shouldn't. You know end who's up gonna anyone's. love it? Everyone over the age of fifty. Really? Yeah. It you really shouldn't end up in your. I sent you this in my text message. Really wanted to talk to me. I did not see her this point. She was very disappointed. Right. Um, yeah, you told me about this. My my stepmother, who see has seen one movie, I think this might be the only movie she's seen that isn't Christmas based, or as I found out today, Moonstruck, which I guess she's watched a hundred times. Um, this is the only movie she has watched other than Worf in the past five years. It is interesting though that it's like out. because of the COVID pandemic, this movie got pushed back and then was able to be released right at the moment of the 20th year anniversary of 9-11, which was I think Honestly, a moment where a lot of Americans would have been more... Because this movie doesn't work 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You like you need the gap from these events to be able to kind of delve into this world without it being as uh, like traumatic as it would have been you know, in past years. Yeah. Worth. It's on Netflix. All right. We're going to end it with our favorite movie um, of the month we will saw, which is Riders of Justice. It's on Hulu. Um Riders of Justice is a His movie. Name is really funny, I think, in retrospect. I don't know why, because it just, it kind of is antithetical to the movie itself. It makes it seem like the revenge story that it was sold. Well, I actually, think, I actually kind of love the way they sold this and the way it was sold and way it like marketed and sort of like what it played into and then how it actually ended up being. So, uh, Riders of Justice is a film where Mads Mikkelsen is an army officer. And his wife is killed in an explosion on the train. And um, he uh, he is a, he has, uh, three guys, three like techie hacker dudes with all their own baggage come to help him. They're all like like statistical analysis kind of people, right? Like they're, they're, they're statisticians, like, yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, they're trying to like um, computer science, algorithms, a lot of mm-hmm. algorithms and stuff. And they come to him and say, we don't think this is an accident. We think this was actually an attack. And they start hunting it down. And there's a sort of uh, gang, biker gang riders of justice uh, in the country. And sort of 
you think this is going to be a Mads Mikkelsen revenge thriller in like the vein of the Liam Neeson films? The, the way they show him too, being this you know shaved head, really like built military guy that can definitely kick some ass. You do see him. He does get a couple ass, scenes, but it's also in a different light. It's not the like hurrah hurrah hell yeah kicking ass that you kind of thought the movie was going to be. It's kind of it's really toying with that Liam Neeson as character. It's 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 really kind of saying something against that kind of persona. Yeah, I mean, the movie is really just all about trauma. It's about yeah. the trauma of losing your wife, the trauma of losing your mom. These three, you know, statistician, computer science guys all have, like, all these past traumas, and they talk about it, and these, like, kind of wonderful European, like, emotional sequences where they're just, like, sitting around the table talking about, like, why they are the people they are today. You Like, you learn really quickly. Like, you see that these three guys are all very damaged either physically or mentally. Like they have real hangups, but there's a weird camaraderie between the three of them where they've all learned about, they, they have abrasiveness and fights with each other, but they also have these moments where they know how to calm the other ones down. Like even as, as simple as just like, like weird, there's like a, one of the guys does this thing where he runs his hands along the other guy's spine and like that helps him calm down really and like, like center other. himself again. It's a really, to me, it was very much like a, an anxiety uh, controlling technique, you know, trying to center the person back in. Um, Mads is just fantastic. And uh, this guy named Nicolas Lacasse is, I think, just he this plays the second like lead of the movie in a way. And he is I, I, just stunning. I, I, I genuinely wish this movie would receive the same level of notoriety in the US as it did in Denmark. Um, it actually beat another round for the, the highest box office opening. It easily can compete with another. I like this better than another round. I think I have slightly had too. Yeah. Um, it's less of a mad showcase performance as another round is, but um, yeah, Nicholas Lacoste should, is... should be nominated slash potentially win best supporting actor. I think he's that good. Maybe not win it, but he does get, you know, he's some great so good. scenes to bring the, the kind of emotional themes um to the front and um also this movie is like really funny and very so, funny um the moments he gets to kind of be this the like nerdy statistician um and kind of caught in this high stakes action revenge plot is still kind of um really funny um yeah and and then you get shocked by his kind of moments of true grief and He's a um, wonderful scene with the daughter. He's a wonderful scene with Mads. Insight. Yeah. So good. He becomes the insightful one. He's almost the hero of the movie to kind of help the other, like help Mads come to terms with it in a more realistic way. Cause it is kind of judging that I said that Liam Neeson kind of character for their idea of getting over their grief being to take physical revenge. This is not seen as a heroic act in this movie. Um, we're not spoiler talks yet. So we'll just keep it at that. Um, but it's seen as like a irrational way for him to um, deal with that grief. Cause I mean, I think this movie is very thematically rich. I think we're just talking about in terms of grief, but there's also in terms of um, violence and inherited violence um, as a daughter really kind of worries about how that's going to affect, you know, her development. Is she going to yeah. act just like um, her father? Cause you, you watch how even with her boyfriend, he just re his first reaction is always this violence that he's kind of been trained to react with by the military 
um, you know, and taken, that violence is what brings him out of his grief. His trained violence helps him save the day and, and bring reckoning to the people that cause him such pain. Um, and, and this, that violence um, is almost dooming him in this forever cycle of looking for revenge and never being able to come across it in a way that's so intelligent and not expected with what I thought this movie was doing. It is not a thriller. It is a true emotional drama, despite yeah. the name being Writers of Justice. Which means multiple things in the context of the film. Um, I will say the two big things is when you compare it to the Nisa movies, this movie plays off all the violence in one of two ways. It's either seen as horrifically traumatic to the people who had to witness the violence or like ridiculous and stupid and like how did that just happen um there's a sort of ridiculousness to all the violence and be like what on earth did we just do yeah. um and even in moments when the violence does kind of come off hirage we as an audience know that 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 the violence in terms is kind of meaningless and pointless to where we still are kind of judging them for those actions yeah and I also think there's a moment in the film where um, the daughter's boyfriend has this line about how when trauma happens, people resort to the thing that is like fundamentally defines them. So his example is the yoga person who gets trauma, who is traumatized, yeah. goes through to the trauma by yoga. So you sort of see how everyone in this movie, you know, Mads resorts to just violence and his military training. And these nerds like resort, resort to like, running a billion algorithms and fighting about the probability, you know, calculus and like, what's the threshold that will actually allow, you know, it's like basically just, it's really simple probability testing. It's really simple confidence interval testing. Um, it's just classic, you know, yeah. just really basic, simple statistics, but like fighting about like the really minutia of them. Um, yeah. And, and, and yet, everyone's a way to articulate their emotions is through those things. Cause it is a running joke, but also emotionally impactful is that every time, um, you know, we, I'm not going to remember his name, but the side character or any of his buddies have motions of real emo or moments of real emotional insight. Um, they're all articulated at first through a series of uh, statistical evaluations of things. Um, yeah. and, and sometimes a little misguided in its like um, um, approach to um, the characters, not always um, light footed in its approach, but always once it, he gets to the point what this means it, it, it's super resonant and in a way that's interesting yeah i would also like to while we're mentioning it uh lars Brigman and uh nicholas bro are the other two actors uh that make up the four riders justice yeah. everyone in this movie is great like really 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 good and um i am i was shocked by how emotional this movie made me from like there's like scenes in this film of you know a character walking along the side of the road where you feel from the final scene the final sequence of the film um when a certain trauma the character had spoken about being taken away from them is returned to them and they get their triumphant moment you know it brought tears to my eyes i was like incredibly emotionally connected to these men and the thing is watching them they're just so vulnerable in their own traumas and like the way they've had to deal with them and how they've been hurt by the world and you as an audience are just absolutely sucked in to everything they're doing. Um, this movie is like amazing. Like shock. Like I knew I knew I was gonna like this because it's you know my, I like, thought you were gonna like it because it was gonna be a Liam Neeson esque revenge thriller with one of your favorite actors, Matt Mickelson. I legitimately thought going into this, this was gonna be the Ice Road or 
was Honest Thief. These are like the Neeson movies of recent years. I thought that was what we were going for. And I was just blown away. It's my number currently right now. It's my number two movie of the year. Um, I, yeah, I don't love it as much as you do, but I do like it. It's my favorite movie of the month, um, which I, I said I wanted to highlight as we do these shows from now on. Yeah. Um, this would easily, I think, be the pick. Yeah. And like, um, and I cannot say this enough. If you have Hulu, go watch this movie. Yeah. This movie is legitimately great. And it's, and it's fun too. We made it sound like it's a, a drudge. No, um, it's emotional and funny. And it has like yeah, Mads Mickelson doing a it John Wick scene. Action, like real action moments. There's too, a, he said it's kind of. Yeah. It's like John Wick esque moments in this film. Um, get people fighting about uh, little statistics stuff. Always fun for everyone. And yeah. Just super smart and deeper than this movie has any right to be. There's, you know, um, a lot of ideas about coincidence and how it kind of rules our life in a way that I, I find always interesting. It's one of my like favorite things throughout movies. Um, they, they handle that at, at the right level. And, you know, they book in there with a couple scenes that, that so smartly connect to that, to that point. That was this all controlled by a bike? Yeah, it is a, a, uh, a bike. Yeah, that that is a that is such a European. The like the actual the, the specific opening, the specific ending is such a European like film thing. Um, that's wonderful. Yeah, this movie is way better than it ever should have been. Like uh, I was absolutely blown away. And are Watch you fully Rogers. on now? Matt Mickelson, top five actors of the past twenty years for you. So here's the okay. So this is something I was thinking about when I was watching this. No, no, no I generally. Um, the problem with Mads Mikkelsen is he is great when he is working in Danish films, mm-hmm. and every time he comes to the U.S., it's not that he's bad; it's that he just gets shit roles. He's often villains because they just see his like very European face. But but even like like Rogue One and Doctor Strange, so he's the villain in one, he's the dad in the other. Just both nothing roles. Good it's still, one. It's I like I, mean, I like him, but it's a nothing role. It's just frustrating how like no one has ever done with him what Vinterberg and um what's this yeah. gentleman's name that I, I mean, because he knew where I was the best idea of what he could be in a blockbuster Hollywood system. Yes. And then since then he's been just getting inferior versions. Well, yeah. I mean, movie. people love him on Hannibal, but this is not a TV podcast. I've never watched Hannibal, but I hear I hear great things, and I, I do want to watch it someday. Yeah, Anders uh, Thomas Jensen, the director, is just. I, I think that there's just something about Mickelson that he is just very European as a performer, and he fits in European movies just much better than he does in American stuff. Yeah, and honestly, never could it, like even Casino Royale. He's kind of still like a sniveling little brat villain, and not someone super intimidating for his body. But he brings in the first five minutes of this movie, just his posture and how he looks is is kind of almost like a Liam Neeson makeover. Like he is very intimidating. Yeah, his very fury is is intimidating. palpable and impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah, Mads Mikkelsen, the absolute man. Um, please, please just keep making wonderful Danish films with this guy. I will watch five hundred Danish movies either with this this guy or Anders Thomas Jensen or Thomas Spencerberg. Should we go back in the catalog of this director's movies? I feel like, for, at least from this movie, it seems like he has a lot of things to say and a lot of skill. I guess this is a director's movie in a lot of ways. It is. I've never seen it. I've never even heard of any of the movies yeah. he's directed before this. The problem. 
No. That's why I say we gotta explore in the past. January. Andrew's Thomas Shenson month. Call him now. I man, I've seen Man and Chicken. It is a weird dark comedy. Um, if you just take the the moments of them faking a therapy um, and add weird, um, like genetically deformed people to it, that's what that movie is. Wow, he did a lot of work in short film. Also, Matt's really long time. Okay, I've seen movies he helped as a script consultant on, but I've never seen anything um, that he full-on worked on. Well, we all know I'm better than you because I've seen Man and Chicken. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, he's an Oscar winner, interestingly enough. 1998 for uh, Best Live Action Short Film. It doesn't work too much because it was like 2005, then 2015, then 2020. Well, if you look at his um, Wikipedia, he has a bunch of stuff in the meantime where he is writing and or, you know, acting dialogue, helping script consultant, helping with characters. Like he seems to do a lot of behind the scenes work. Like he's not always the top of the the food chain on all his movies. Maybe this like will he- rejuvenate his career because, I, I, I mean, you made it seem like it was pretty successful in Denmark. At least. I think it was quite successful in Denmark. Yeah. Um, yeah, it looks like he's also uh, he's worked with Mickelson before. Man, let me check it. <laughs> well, also he worked with him on a movie called Adam's Apples. Um, yeah, it feels like uh, Mickelson's somebody that you liked. He has a movie supposedly coming up. Uh, oh, he's working on a movie as a writer. Yeah, it looks like he takes a while off to do. Like he does several script. You know, in between this one and Men and Chicken, uh, Men and, oh. and Chicken, he did three movies where he wrote the script, two, and then three things where he was a script consultant. So he does a and lot of work in between. Nicholas Bro, who plays um, Emmentaler in this movie, um, is also a Men and Chicken as like his weird, deformed, big, fat brother. I believe he's also in War Horse. War Horse? Where's my War Horse? It's like the only SNL thing I quote, and no one cares about that sketch at all anymore. Um, but is the best SNL quote. Where is my war horse? Oh, I got to offer for the show tonight. All right. With that, <laughs> I think I think we are uh, we are done for the evening with your uh, new movie roundup. We hope you enjoyed uh, you know our our discussion of all this things. We hope you didn't spoil anything, and we hope that you go out and check out these movies, especially Riders of Justice, because it's fantastic. Yeah, and Card Count is really good. Watch that too. I mean, yeah, I think everything in this month outside of no, Mad One's Ball, two movies. Don't Mad One's Ball and Cry Macho, you probably skipped. The rest of them, I think, are, are worth checking out. Um, yeah, and uh, we will be back soon with it's our discussion of Matt Damon. going to get deeper and longer because movies are about to come out, my friend. Yeah, it was a bit of a I'm bit honest. of a dry month. Uh, October is absolutely loaded. So we'll be back at the end of October to break down what we saw in October. Uh, we'll see you then. Good night, folks. Uh, check out our normally scheduled productions coming soon. Um, yeah. Good night. Good luck. I love you. No good riddance. Not main pod. <laughs>